Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. some of you up here instead of me. I'm so nervous I'm about to have a coronary. If you think it gets any better, it doesn't. My name is Jerry and uh, I've been sober something over 15,000 days. Uh, getting sober April 23rd, 1947. You know something, I'm not any more sober than you are. The last person in that door is the most important person in the room. And yeah. I wish for them what has been given so freely to me. Uh, you know, there's three talks you give. That one you make before that you almost have a coronary over. The one you make that's not too hot. And that one on the way home, oh, honey, that's a real bitch. <laughs> of course, I get kidded a lot about my initials, which are G-O-D. Um, and the kids say, who do you think you are, God? And I say, no, I just own the company. And they say, what company? And just then a big truck comes in, guaranteed overnight delivery. <laughs> there are a lot of laughs over this, and for this I'm grateful. Because there was nothing to laugh about in my life. Um... I was a naughty little child, ugly, awkward, and unwanted. I had a brother who was handsome, successful, and doted upon. Guess what? We both became alcoholics. <laughs> I had a very hard time for a long time, so I had to be successful, didn't I? And unfortunately, I was extremely successful in everything I touched because I was willing to work hard, and I wanted to excel, and you all can do the same thing, one day at a time. Work a little harder, a little longer, a little better, and a little faster and you get where you think you want to go. And when I got there, it wasn't where I wanted to be. It wasn't a thing like I thought it was going to be. 
I had had an alcoholic mother, but in those days the town dowager was not accused of drinking. She had gallbladder attacks. And the doctor came over and gave her the new drug for her vomiting. She was vomiting from drinking in the closet. Uh, but what he said is Vern is having a gallbladder attack, and he gave her the new drug on the market that was going to be like vitamin to cure everything, heroin. And in truth, Verna would be up and at him at the church, and uh, the Middle West didn't burn down because of her, but uh, she got drunker and drunker. I had a father who drank only twice in his life for a week at a time, but for a hard-shell Baptist in a Bible belt in those days to get drunk was unheard of. And so he was uh, relegated to the bottom of the heap as far as his family were concerned. He was a wonderful man, and I adored him. Um, my mother, God rest her soul, never got sober. And for this, I pray that God will be as good to her as I would have liked to be. I went on up the ladder, and I didn't drink when I was 18, but I wanted to be popular because there was nothing right about me. I was one of those people whose faces didn't come together when they were born in the right direction. And I got one ear up here and one ear down here. And I got a crooked nose that runs across my face. And I've got a big mouth and big teeth. And then I've got a foot. That when I'm dancing, you go along like this, and all of a sudden it shoots out to the side <laughs> and forgets to come back. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't make you the very popular. And I love to dance. I still do. And I'm still just as poor at it as I ever was, but I don't care. That's the only thing. Life went on. I was, came out of college in 27 in the Depression when my father went broke and took three jobs and worked like a dog and played just as hard as I worked. And I began to have a good time and I began to be successful and I began to go up in the professional field. And the higher I went, the drunker I got. But you see, I wasn't an alcoholic. You understand that. I did not become an alcoholic until I came to AA. And I have 23 psychiatries reports from 23 different psychiatrists that will prove that I am not an alcoholic. I got drunk all over the United States traveling with this medical team, and they would send me to a psychiatrist for my nerves. See, I was very nervous, and you better believe the next morning I was nervous. <laughs> and the psychiatrist would listen to my sad tale of woe, and uh, he would diagnose me as uh, ultra-nervous. <laughs> and he would give me a little something for my nerves. Now, phenobarbital and all that jazz was just coming on the market then, and I went around with a pocket full in 
my pocket because, you see, it doesn't smell. Now, of course, I wasn't a drinker. You understand that. I just had a gallon in my room in case somebody came in. <laughs> but it was always gone in the morning. But so I wouldn't smell. I'd take the pills and didn't shake and went on. Worked like a dog because I was afraid somebody would find out how drunk I was. And I proceeded to go um, to extremes to cover up my activities. And time went on, and I had finally ended up with 22 psychiatric reports of overwork. And the last one, at one of your large and prestigious clinics up in here in the North Country, I saw the psychiatrist every day for three months, Saturdays and Sundays included. I didn't have to pay for it, by the way. Uh, and he came up with a beautiful report. I was outrageously overworked and underpaid. <laughs> And I was the best-paid woman in the United States. What they didn't tell me was that they were going to put me on a year's leave of absence with full pay, which included a house and a maid and a car and a chauffeur and a handsome salary. They wrote it. They didn't have nerve enough to face me. Maybe you wonder why the young people call me, not Rambo, but Grambo, and <laughs> because it started way back then. And they were afraid to tell me, and they wrote it. And I was incensed by them daring to tell me what to do. And I told them what to do with their job, and they did it. They gave me a handsome bonus. About what would be a third of a million dollars now. And I went through it in six months. And I don't know where I was. Now, along the way here, I'd had a problem that they considered. I had a brother who was a moral leper. He drank too much. <laughs> and I called everybody, and finally I got an idea. He was acting like a juvenile delinquent, so I called a child psychiatrist <laughs> on the eastern seaboard. The only one there was. And I said, Jim... What do I do with my moral leper brother? He drinks all the time. He said, Jerry, I don't know. Now, wait a minute. He said, I was at a medical meeting in New York the other night, and there was a guy there by the name of Bill Wilson, and he's doing something peculiar with men who drink too much. Not women. Men who drink too much. He gave me his card. I'll call him up. And 48 years ago, he called Bill in New York. And Bill and two other guys went out to New Jersey, to Maplewood, to see my brother. And I'm glad to report to you that he stayed sober until his death a few years ago. Now, I was exposed to AA. Do you think I'd call it AA? No. Uh, Bill and Lois were living in a flat in Brooklyn that was pretty hot, and Oscar lived out 
in the hills, so every weekend Bill and Lois used to come out and spend the weekend at the house. I'm grateful to have had their friendship for all these years, Bill until he died and Lois still. And they would come out and spend the weekend. I would occasionally be in town, and when I did, I, they took me to meetings whether I wanted to go or not. As a guest, you understand that I didn't have the problem. <laughs> Finally, one day I said to Bill, um, how do you work that thing? And I'm waving my hands around. You know, that thing. I wouldn't say AA. Bill looked at me and stood there a few minutes. He was awfully thin in those days. He said, well, Jerry, don't drink. Don't take those pills. Go to meetings. And he hesitated and said, and shut up. How dare he? <laughs> but you know, that was to be a password shut up for me. Bill and I spent some time together in Mr. Towns' emporium. He listened to Dr. Silkworth and what he had to say. When Dr. Silkworth came in to see me after I was there the sixth time, I expected somebody to talk to me about my psychiatric problems because I had them. I really was in bad shape. And Dr. Silkworth started to talk to me about alcohol. And I threw him out of the room. <laughs> of course, I said when I came to AA that I wasn't arrogant. I want you to know that. Dr. Silkworth wouldn't come back when I asked him to. And I didn't get well. But thank God Bill did. And thank God my brother did. And they were so tolerant of me. And I was getting in the hospital all over the country by that time because mixing up the pills and the booze, you know, all you get is one and one doesn't make two. They get together and make six, eight, or ten, and if I was flying at 10,000 feet and landing in the hospital out in Frisco. I was unconscious for ten days, came to, and they told me I almost died, and I laughed in their face and said, you can't kill the Irish, and was drunk three hours after I left to the hospital, but I said I wasn't insane, you know, the, this insanity of this disease. Insane is not whole, not normal. If that's whole and normal, I'll eat it. <laughs> time went on. Came the time. And you know there is always a time for each and every one of us. Why God let me live it was so good to me, I don't know, but I sure am grateful. 
Because you see, I didn't believe in God. Not me. I was all powerful. By the way, if you guys in the back there get tired of listening before I get tired of talking, you either raise your hand or leave the room. Because uh, I just ramble on. But they say there's a level below which God won't let us go. And one morning, and I don't know how I got back to Chicago, I left my clothes all over the United States. I never spent money, put them in one of these lockers, you know, in the train station or in the airlines and forget, lose the key, never went back to get them. Hope somebody enjoyed them. <laughs> but one morning... I wakened. Now, I'd been in all these psychiatric hospitals, but with nurses around the clock. But this morning, I wakened in a bed, a string hanging down from the ceiling with a bulb on the end of it. I looked over to the right because I always checked to my right to be sure I was alone. And I was most of the time because I looked so terrible. And there were bars on the window. Well, there are bars in my house. And I looked to the left, and you know that people they talk about in the door, it was there. Sloppy architect, no doorknobs. <laughs> and you know, I am an intellectual. You understand this. And I knew right where I was. I was in a nut house. And that's right where I was. Now, I had called my brother a moral leper for over six and a half years. But that morning, I said out loud, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to ask my brother if he will help me. I left off the moral leper. And the miracles started to happen because 20 minutes later, he stepped off the elevator in that nut house in Chicago. They let me out to talk to him. And he looked down at me and he said, Honey, you've made a pretty lousy mess out of your life. Do you want to do something about it? Well, I wanted to do something, but I didn't go, want to go with that bunch of holy rollers that he was going with. They were praying all the time, saying the Lord's Prayer, the serenity prayer, and saying, please, God. But you know, we're all basically liars. So I crossed the fingers and said, yes, I do want to do something. <laughs> What I really wanted to do was get out of that nut house. And he said, well, and this is important for you family people. Honey, I love you too much to be objective. I can't help you. And my heart went right down to my feet. There's my last hope.
It seemed like an eternity before he spoke again. I know it wasn't. But he said, I'll get someone. And we flew back to Chicago, and I'm used to being on flat land out there. And we had to land in Allentown, New Jersey, up in the hills, coming down in the limousine, up and down those hills. I'm 48 hours without anything. I'm dying. And then he is a professor at Rutgers, and he has to teach some business courses in Newark. He leaves me in a hotel lobby with no money, no pills, no boots. Well, I'm dying, and i got, I got to do something, don't I? So I went in the ladies' room, going to fix up a little bit, and see if I could go in the bar and one of the men will buy me a drink. Never had to do that in my life. Always had plenty of money. Didn't have any money, didn't have any booze, didn't have any pills, didn't have any anything. And I went and took one look at myself in the mirror and my friends, I gave it up. <laughs> that was the most horrible sight. I've ever seen in my life. Straight hair. We didn't have permanence in those days. Straight hair. No makeup. I'm no prize made up to the hilt. <laughs> By the way, I learned in AA that pretty is as pretty does. But I hadn't learned it then. But some way or other, one minute at a time, I got through that. And I went to live with my brother, and they started taking me to AA meetings. They didn't say, dear, would you like to go to a meeting? Come on, we're going to a meeting. I don't feel like it. Who asked you if you felt like it? You drank every day, didn't you? And then that shut-up business started. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Little sawed-off sergeant from Fort Monmouth was the, was the uh, um, chairman at the South Orange Group. He'd fit right under my arm, and I'm not very tall. And he kept saying, shut up. Shut up. And I said, I thought you could do AA any way you wanted to. And he looked down his nose at me. Here he is, this little squirt. Looking down his nose, he said, you don't have a way. <laughs> he was right. My way got me drunk. Little bit at a time, I thought, I'll show these dummies. I'll learn the 12 steps. I'll memorize all this garbage. I'll show them what being smart really is. And so I did learn all the steps. I wish I could repeat them now as well as I could then. But you know, something happened along the way because 
Come eight months of sobriety, I knew the steps. I'd been going to meetings. I'd joined the group. I was supposedly doing everything that I should. I'd gotten another sponsor by that name. Her name was also Helen because the first one that came to see me went home crying to her husband and said, this is the first person I've ever been asked to see. Why did they send me to see somebody hopeless? And this is another Helen, and uh, uh, she kept me going to meetings. And I had been going, but I had decided that I knew it all now. I knew what the trouble was, and I knew how to manage it. And I was going to go back to Chicago and join my friends and drink like a lady. I never wanted to be anything but a lady. I wasn't going to tell anybody because they'd object. They wouldn't understand. So I was working again by that time, and I bought myself an airplane ticket, and I got everything packed uh, when nobody was looking, and I'm all ready to leave. Now, along the way, they had given me an AA book, which I threw out the window into a mud puddle. And then they came back on the night table. It was a very peculiar big book. It had legs. Uh, And I threw it in the dirty laundry just as it was going out to the laundry. Guess who brought it back, the laundryman? It was on the night table that night. And I thought it was the worst book anybody had ever written. Any idiot could write a book better than that, but this idiot has never been able to. But it was there. And this night before I was going to run away, I went to the South Orange meeting And came home and sat down on the side of the bed. A lot of wonderful things have happened to me on the side of the bed. And there was that book. And I opened it. And the first miracle of AA came to me. Because I opened the book and it fell open. To the page on how it works, I think it was 57 in the old book. And I started to read. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I wasn't following any path except to destruction. And I read on down the paragraph, and you know those words, honest, in that paragraph, That I, obnoxious word. (laughs) And I got down to the steps, and I did something that I had never been told to do, which I think was divine guidance. Now, you understand I did not believe in God. And one of the old-timers said, oh, well, what about good orderly direction? And that didn't sound bad. So good orderly direction was God for me. But I didn't really believe in anything that was greater than I was. And I got down to the steps and I start to read 
them in the first person. I admit that I am powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. That was startling to me. Why I did it, I don't know. It's written in the third person because the group who got together and decided this is the way they would explain this wonderful group of guidelines, this roadway to happiness, not just sobriety, any idiot can get sober. It takes something very special to stay sober and enjoy it and grow in life. And I read down those steps in the first person, and I closed the book and laid down and went to sleep. Now, I had come off of 20 years of medication and 19 years of pills. In the early days when we were running bootleg booze, uh, I wanted to be popular, but I didn't drink because I had the phenobarbital, which was, they would have called me a hyperkinetic kid now. They called me an honorary little brat, and I think that's probably the right term. Um, but I carried booze across the Canadian border in hot water bottles strapped between my legs to be popular. Two quarts of Canadian whiskey when we were drinking rock got my friends. I was popular. And, you know... I had never been popular, but coming off of 20 years of pills and 19 years of booze, because when I had the first drink of straight alcohol mixed with a little water, a little juniper berry, put it in hard cider and drink it and you'll fly right over the moon on top of a handful of phenobarbital. let me tell you, that if you think you kids fly on some of these new things, try that. <laughs> so, I knew what being nervous was, and I hadn't been sleeping, hadn't been sleeping very fitfully, because, you know, we like that zonked out sleep. It doesn't come after you stop drinking. But the sleep you get is more restful. But I didn't know. I forgot all of the intellectual garbage went down the drain with the booze. And that night I laid down and went to sleep. And I slept soundly. And I wakened in the morning. As I sat on the side of the bed, I realized I'd had a glorious night's sleep. And something else had happened. The desire to return to Chicago and drink like a lady had left me. That, to me, was a spiritual awakening. That desire to drink and drug has never returned. 
in the 41 years plus that I've been sober. This was a gift from my higher power. And I started going to AA then for me. I started learning. I started listening. I started acting. I can be the smartest kid in the graveyard. In the early days, they used to say, kiss a lot, keep it simple, stupid. But I prefer now to say, keep it simple, spiritually. Keep your guidelines for yourself down to a place where you can really live with them. And the first guideline is don't drink. Don't take those pills. Go to meetings and shut up. That had been given. <laughs> I've been a very fortunate woman because so many miracles have happened to me along the way. But the greatest miracle of all was that I was accepted by AA people. There weren't very many women. I was number four in New Jersey and New York. But I had to go to work, and I went to work for the Medical Society and started what is now called, I think, out here, uh, Homemaker Home Health Aid. And I started the third branch of the National Council. And that was a a wonderful thing happened to me because Marty Mann was just as tough an alcoholic as ever came across the pipe. She and Bill were going to start this together, and the AA people objected to Bill using his last name, so Marty went on and did the education, and Bill went on and did the work. And, uh, but when I'd say, I can't, to Marty, she'd say, you don't say can't in AA. You do the very best you can. That's all God calls upon you to do. And maybe your best is better than somebody you're watching that you think is perfect. She kept saying, keep it simple. Keep it simple. And this has been hard. I've had a hard time with words all the time I've been in AA. Um, I've wanted to rewrite the book, of course. You understand that. Everybody does. Uh, but I got all mixed up between spirituality and organized religion. Now, it took a young man who was an abbot to straighten me out. I'm a heathen, incidentally, in case you don't know. Uh, my father was a hard-shell Baptist. My mother was a Methodist. My brother's a Presbyterian. I married a Roman Catholic. And that's to show you that you don't get sober overnight because I'd been sober two years and I married a 50-year-old Roman Catholic bachelor in AA 
who came complete with aged mother as a package. And I don't recommend it. And all of you folks that marry an AA, if you think your old man's going to think like you do or vice versa, I've got news for you. Men and women do not think alike. They are different. Thanks be to God for the little difference, you know. Uh, who would want them if there wasn't a difference? Not me. Somebody said, were you ever married more than once? I ran away with a 57-year-old man when I was 17. My mother found it out six months later and chased him out of town and annulled the marriage. Nice man, too. Um, then I married a... Um, guy by the name of Young Love, and he had a marvelous son who taught me strictness, because when he and his, his father and I got a divorce, he went into court and asked to be allowed to stay with me, and was, and I couldn't understand it. I said, Dick, Pop is so generous, and I'm so strict. Why did you want to live with me? He said, Mom... You loved me enough to make me behave. And that has been my philosophy with alcoholics all along. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I hope you love me enough to tell me the truth. Because I need you. I need you today as badly as I did the first day I was sober. And maybe worse on some days. Because as time goes on, God gives his toughest tougher things to make the hurdles. And you know, they say, oh, well, you're good and sober at two years. Oh, yeah? When I marry that Irishman at two years, I'm sober? Dr. Ruth Fox told me it takes two years to get your brains out of hock and three more to get them unscrambled and then you begin to grow. <laughs> I loved that Irishman the day I met him, the day I married him, the day he died. He was a good member of AA, a strong member of AA. And I have to tell this as part of my story because it's very hard for people to understand why they can't take something for their nerves. Tom was never a pill taker, never even as much as took an aspirin. But he had a, he'd been sober over 20 years, and he had a bad back. And a friend gave him some muscle relaxant and said, don't tell Jerry. She's a nut on those things. And he didn't, and it helped his back. And he had a cigarette cough. And this guy gave him some, quote, new cough medicine. And incidentally, new medicines become old medicines. 
Alcohol was new one time to the caveman when it dropped down on the rocks and fermented. Now it's old medicine. Tom didn't tell me about the cough medicine. And three days later, after 20 years of wonderful sobriety, he was in the bar. Seventeen months later, after being in 14 hospitals, he bled to death of an esophageal hemorrhage. I will never stop talking about the things that make us drunk again. Never. When Tom died, it was another time in my life when I said, I can't. And my friend said, you will. And God stepped in and took another friend of mine that I'd loaned money to start a rehab. She dropped dead. Guess who had to start it? I never wanted to work in the alcohol field. And God doesn't call up in the morning and say, you cute little thing, you can do it as you want to today. <laughs> he says, get off your can and do it the way I tell you to do. Now. <laughs> so the journey of a million miles begins with the first step. Take it. Whatever it is in whatever area of your life, don't come up to me and tell me you're depressed. All depression is is unresolved discontent and you're too lazy to get off your butt and do something about it. <laughs> of course, my psychiatric friends could kill me in cold blood. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me a bit. Not one bit. Because... Um, you see, I know what I believe, and I have earned the right to believe it. In the treatment center, I have a lot of young people, you know, and I want you to know that what you hear about me is true. They don't call me Rambo, they call me Grambo. Grambo is on a strafing mission. I'm out to tell you this is the way you do it. One day at a time, whether you like it or not. I didn't say, did the Lord call you up this morning and say, you cute little thing, do it the way you want to do? He gave you a kick in the butt if you weren't going the right direction, and he gave me a lot of kicks. Losing Tom was one of them. But you know, I had AA. AA is my life. AA is my backbone. AA is what I live by. Why do I stay in AA? Because I'm comfortable here. You are my people. You know where I come from. 
It doesn't make any difference what language I talk in. It doesn't make much difference what I say. It makes a whole lot of difference what I do. Oh, yeah, I know the way. And I can show you the way. But it isn't worth the powder and shot to blow it to hell unless I go the way and hold out my hand and say, Come along, I'll show you where the rough spots are. In a, I have found spirituality. In AA, I've found that I'm just an average person who's lucky enough to be alcoholic. And I have friends all over the world, just like you, who all I have to do is pick up the telephone, regardless of where it is, and you will help. You will extend the hand of friendship wherever I am. Um, I didn't like the word alcohol ick. <laughs> ick is dirty. <laughs> now, if it had been Jelenic's disease after the great Dr. Jelenic, it had been lovely, wouldn't it? If we went for Jelenic's therapy, it wouldn't have done for me what Alcoholics Anonymous did. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a road map to follow. Very simple. Any idiot can follow, even this idiot. And I don't have to drink anymore to do the things I want to do. I didn't like the word addiction. You know, I recommend that if you're having trouble with words in AA, that you use the dictionary. Mr. Webster's short stories are really very good. <laughs> An addiction is nothing in the world except pain plus a learned relief. And it doesn't say whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, and I had all of them. And I learned the relief by the simple steps in AA and don't drink, don't drug. Go to meetings, shut up, listen. And I hear from you, this has been the most wonderful conference for me. I have just never seen so many enthusiastic, wonderful people of all ages together. And I know the committee isn't going to like this, but I'm not running a popularity contest. Um, they've done a beautiful job, and I'm so pleased to be numbered among the people they thought would help you, because if it doesn't help you, it sure has helped me. It isn't uh, one person, me, has been helped. I have to go on doing all the things that AA wanted me to, I have to continue to take a fourth and fifth step. I take a written fourth step once a year, and I go 
to a trusted friend, to empty it all out and take a look at that garbage. Take a look at the good things as well. And I have used the 12 steps. Not one at a time. It's a way of life. If you live in a two-story house, you don't go up at just once or down at just once, do you? You go up and down and up and down, maybe once a day, maybe ten times. It's all there, but you take every one of the steps. It's simply a simplified package that helps you learn how to walk in a comfortable manner. We're not running a popularity contest, but we sure are providing a way of life to people. And I want to keep helping where I can. You know, lots of us have a tendency to skip meetings. You know, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. And you better go to meetings and your storehouse better be filled or you won't float when the flood comes. Uh, you'll drown instead. Um, I urge you, I see many of you doing here, to take notes at meetings. You say, well, I feel self-conscious. Okay, so you feel self-conscious. I think we're an inferior feeling bunch of people. I never got up to make a talk in my life when I was sure of myself. And I've talked for a living for 62 years. Not just at AA. But I'm still nervous. Why? Because I want to be, quote, perfect by my standards. And I better look at my standards. I better look at what God wants me to be. I say some peculiar things every once in a while, and I think, what? where did that come from? <laughs> and you know something? That belief in God I have is a very strong one. I can't draw you a picture of my God. I simply can tell you what he does for me. He gives me strength. He gives me courage. He gives me love when love is understanding whether I approve or not. He gives me everything I need. He gave me a chance to come out here and not many kids my age. I passed 81. Be 82 my next birthday. But I'm not afraid of tomorrow because now I have a simple faith given to me by AA. My sponsors are all dead, save the one who came to see me and never came back because she went home and told her husband, why did they send me to see somebody hopeless? But she's sober.
She's younger than I am. I talk to her on the telephone. But each of you are my sponsors. I listen to what you have to say. You tell me more than you think you do. So I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid of today. And I'm not afraid of another day if it comes. I just don't drink. I go to meetings. I help where I can. I do what I can. And I keep my prayers simple. My faith is simple. I don't ask for things from God. I say thank you at night. Thank you for this day, for the people you've let me be with, for the words you put in my mouth, for the words you've allowed me to hear. And to the young lady, if she's in the room who's been talking to the hearing impaired, that's a wonderful thing. You know, we don't know how fortunate we are. Going home from Oklahoma, I was delayed in Chicago three hours, when it should have been an hour and a half, and I was bitching about my tired legs, my heavy briefcase, my stupid secretary. And I looked across the aisle, and there sat a young man, looked to be about 21, 22 years old, beautifully groomed, and I thought, brother, he's got the world with a tail. And I looked down, and there was a seeing-eye dog at his feet. All of a sudden, my legs were tired. My briefcase wasn't heavy. And I went to him and asked if he wanted something to eat. He'd already eaten. But I remembered, Lord, forgive me when I whine. And you know, we are so fortunate to be able to have somebody that understands what we say. I'm so fortunate to have you because you're my friends. You understand me. There's so many things that I wanted to say, and I can't remember one of them, so I guess the Lord didn't want me to say them anyway. <laughs> but I just don't want to go to sleep on the 12 steps, because I know I'll fall down if I do. And I'd like to close today with a little poem. And incidentally, people sometimes ask me when I have cards, can I see your cards? And I say, yeah, but it isn't what I said. <laughs> I do little things that make me less nervous, and one of them is carry cards. Because when I was a child, my mother tried to make a pianist out of me. And I didn't want to be a pianist, so I lost the music before the concert. And the maestro made me play anyway. And I got halfway through it and couldn't finish three times. Got up and left the stage, and I can't even play chopsticks.
after 10 years of music. So I carry my music with me, just in case of fire. And so today, as you go on your way home, just know that you're an important part of my life. You're an important part of the lives of many. You may not think you have anything to contribute, but God doesn't make junk, you know. He makes people and has something for them to do. So we say, isn't it strange that princes and kings and clowns that caper in sawdust rings and common people like you and me are builders of our destiny? To each is given a bag of tools, a building block, a set of rules. There they are, right up there on the walls. And each must make your life has flown a stumbling block or a stepping stone. Each morning I get up and say, Thank you, God, for a good night's sleep. Show me the way. And he does. And each night, I ask God to take my hand. It's better that way, I know. Because if I take his, instead of his taking mine, I may get afraid and let go. God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.